Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And we think you deserve to understand the Oristaya. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Oristaya and Chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we are going to summarize a play from the Oristaya, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. On this episode, we're summarizing the Eumenides. Or Orestes at Athens. And our fancy person is Dr. Oliver Taplin, Emeritus Professor at Oxford University. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. Scene 1. The play opens at the entrance to the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Pythia, a priestess in charge of the oracle at Apollo at Delphi, prays alone. She's about to go inside the temple and deliver a prophecy. She goes into the temple and comes right back out again. Alarmed, there is a man inside with bloody hands, a sword, and an olive bough. She doesn't name him, but if we've paid attention to the previous play, we can assume it's Orestes. So other than for the audience to recognize him, why is he carrying an olive bough? It marks him as a suppliant. In other words, it shows that he has come to ask a favor of the god of the temple, in this case, Apollo. However, he's not alone. Pythia says that there's a repulsive band of female-looking creatures with disgusting ooze dripping from their eyes. Ew. Asleep near the mystery man. Apparently, these characters were so terrifying that there are accounts of women in the audience having miscarriages. She doesn't know what to make of it, but decides that it's Apollo's house, so it's his problem. And she runs off the way she came. Scene 2. Apollo and Orestes are in the temple chatting. Wait, are they having coffee? Are they bros now? This seems very casual. Yep, it's an abrupt beginning to a scene. Just go with it. Apollo reassures Orestes that he will protect him since, you know, he's the one who told Orestes to kill his mom and stepdad. He instructs Orestes to go to Athens and informs him that the women with the dripping ooze have been overcome by sleep, the suggestion being that he induced the slumber. But also, he doesn't quite say women. The list of names he calls them includes, but is not limited to, and we're drawing from multiple translations here, abominations, virgin crones, grey virgins with whom no god nor any among men or any beast has intercourse. Okay, sir, we still don't know their names or who they are. Must we know their sexual history or your opinions on their appearance? Yes and no. Virgins were believed to have pent-up power and aggression, so that makes them extra scary. Uh Uh-huh. Were virgin men scary, too? No, just women. Virgin men are totally unthreatening. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's totally weird, but it's an ancient Greek thing. Anyway... The scene ends with Orestes leaving in haste. Wouldn't you? 
Scene 3. The ghost of Clytemnestra enters from the temple and speaks to the sleeping pussy women. We learn that they are the Arrhenias, or the Furies if you prefer. Because, reminder, there are multiple names for everything around here. Arrhenias is the Greek, and Furies is the Latin. The Arrhenias serve as the chorus in this play. Dead Clytemnestra is summoning the Furies because she has been humiliated. Yes, she killed her husband, but there hasn't been a single god enraged that she died at the hands of her son. So the ever-resourceful Clytemnestra takes the summoning upon herself. That is one power move. Some of the Arrhenias begin moaning in their sleep. Eventually, the full chorus pipes in with more moans and screaming. Get him! Clytemnestra gets increasingly enraged that the Arrhenias are not waking up, so she leaves. Well, they can't hurt Orestes in a temple. It's kind of like a sanctuary situation. So why not take a nap? They slowly start waking up and notice that Orestes is gone. They freak out about it and then declare that he can run, but he'll always be trapped by his guilt. Dun dun dun! Scene 4. Apollo enters from the temple. Wait, so is the implication that we're always outside of it, but never in it? Yes, Greek tragedies take place outside of buildings, even when the actions should theoretically be happening inside. It stems from the way that Greek stages were built. Apollo starts kicking the Arunias out, saying they're not welcome in his space. In the process, he spouts some really graphic insults about their appearance. The Arunias are like, um... Our job is to harass Orestes and make him feel guilty for his actions, which you were a big part of since you told him to kill his mom. And he replies that Clytemnestra started it by killing her husband. Well, he started it. Which turns into a short debate about whether the bond of marriage is more sacred than the bond of blood. This is going to come up a lot, so remember it. Apollo concludes that Athena will be the judge of this feud, so they should all leave Delphi and go to Athens. Delphi is sacred to Apollo. Athens is sacred to Athena. Road trip! Both sides agree to keep doing what they're doing. The Arrhenias will harass Orestes forever, and Apollo will continue to protect him. So absolutely no progress has been made. Scene 5. We are now in Athens, where Orestes approaches the statue of Athena. In comes the chorus of Arrhenias, thirsty for revenge. Orestes tries to reason with them, saying he only killed Clytemnestra because Apollo told him to. And he's visited many people since then without killing them. Wow, that's a winning argument. Let's applaud another man for basic decency. The chorus is not convinced, and warns him that neither Apollo nor Athena can protect him from his bloody fate. The chorus then goes into a song that basically boils down to killing your kin is wrong, and it's our job to make you pay, so the gods don't have to deal with the gruesome task of killing you. Scene 6. In Athens, Athena shows up and she's like, What's going on and who are all of you hanging out by my statue? The Arunias introduce themselves to Athena, present their case, and ask her to decide Orestes' fate. An impromptu trial then takes shape with Athena's presiding judge. She turns to Orestes and asks him to plead his case. Orestes introduces himself. He's from Argos, he's Agamemnon's son, and then he repeats his story thus far for Athena's benefit, so we're going to give it to you again. Agamemnon was a war hero, but arrived home only to be murdered by his wife, so naturally, Orestes had to kill his mom to make her pay, but Apollo told him to do so, therefore, he's cleansed from all guilt. He concludes by telling Athena that he'll accept whatever her verdict is. Let's pause here for a second. 
Shouldn't Orestes be at least the tiniest bit mad that his father killed his sister Iphigenia? That does seem to go on the back burner. Perhaps because Artemis demanded the sacrifice of Iphigenia, just as Apollo demanded that Orestes kill Clytemnestra. And Apollo is Artemis's brother. I guess Ichor is thicker than blood? By the way, Ichor is the substance that runs through the veins of the gods. Get it? According to Athena, this whole mess is way too complex for humans to decide. It's even too complex for her to decide on her own, so she asks both parties to hang tight while she goes to assemble a jury of her citizens. And thus, the justice system is born. This scene gives the origin story for the court of the Areopagus, which was a court that dealt with murders and a few other heinous crimes. Orestes and the Arunias are left alone while Athena recruits jurors, so naturally, the chorus decides to perform a song. Were you expecting them to twiddle their thumbs? In the song, the Arunias dissect the dangers of mother killers going unpunished and conclude with assertion that justice must be served and that, quote, God mocks the man so certain that he's immune from dangers. The Arunias have a long memory and lots of examples they can call to mind. Scene 7. Athena comes back with jurors and asks the Herald to assemble the people. Even though there isn't a Herald character. While she delivers a speech discussing the importance of the trial. Apollo shows up as a witness for Orestes. Athena begins the proceedings by giving the floor to the prosecution. The Arrhenias question Orestes with the basics. Did you kill your mother? How did you do it? Orestes answers all the questions and stands by his actions, since Apollo authorized them. Orestes asks Apollo to give his judgment before the court. Apollo addresses the court, saying that the matricide was justified, and he can't lie since he's a prophet. He's never uttered a word that wasn't authorized by Almighty Zeus. Apollo uses this tactic because he knows that Athena is Zeus's favorite child. He adds that Agamemnon was a war hero who came home to be murdered in a tub by his cheating wife. Like we haven't heard that one before. The chorus challenges Apollo's argument that a father's death is a bigger deal than a mother's by reminding him that Zeus tied up his own father, Kronos. Apollo fires back, saying that a mother merely feeds the embryo. The true parent is he who thrusts, meaning the father. Wow, this dude is on the fast lane to being cancelled. No kidding, although shockingly, this wasn't far off their understanding of the biology during this period. Oh dear. He allegedly proves his argument by pointing out that Athena was born of Zeus and never gets gestated in a female womb. Excuse me while I go scream into the void. (laughs) Athena has heard enough. Haven't we all? So she asked the jurors to cast their votes. Note that in this period, jury votes were silent and anonymous. They cast pebbles into a clay jar to vote. The jurors one by one get up to cast their votes. Meanwhile, given their lack of maturity... Apollo and the Arrhenias begin telling the jurors the consequences of voting against them. Athena publicly casts her vote in favor of Orestes, so that she can be a tiebreaker if the jurors' votes are split. So much for an impartial judge. In Athena's defense, we don't actually know the order in which the courtroom scene happened on the stage. Scholars are still debating what order these speeches occur in. The order is different in different editions and translations. And guess what? When they count the votes, it's a tie. Since Athena preemptively broke the tie, Orestes is acquitted and free to go. Hooray? As he leaves to go home, Orestes declares that for the rest of time, quote, no leader of my land shall ever marshal here a hostile armored force. In other words, there is an eternal truce between Argos and Athens. Scene 8. 
The Arrhenias are really mad at Athena. They feel consumed by grief and deprived of their rights, so they want to leave and make all humans miserable. Honestly, same. Athena tries to calm them down by arguing that they weren't defeated. The votes were equally split, but she had to side with Orestes because Zeus, Athena's father, promised Orestes would be protected from harm. And you can't argue with a daddy god. The Arrhenias remain unconvinced, but Athena persuades them by offering them an exchange. If they stay in Athens, they'll receive great veneration and offerings from humans once their anger has subsided. The implication is that if they don't take this offer, she will crush them. Usually, the punishments for those that disobeyed Zeus, and trust me, Athena is going to get Zeus involved if this doesn't go her way, don't end well. They either die or end up tortured for eternity. Not exactly an appealing option. Scene 9. The Arrhenias accept Athena's offer. In lieu of plaguing murderers, they pledge to protect the city from harmful winds, plagues upon the crops, internal strife, untimely deaths, etc. They also pledge plentiful growth of lambs and grain. Well, that took a left turn. In exchange, they will be venerated and worshipped with prayers and offerings by the citizens of Athens. Gods live for that stuff. This conversation turns into a procession as women with torches and the jurors join in. Usually when this sort of thing happens in Greek tragedy, it resembles an actual ritual practice. Thus, the play doubles as an origin story for these rites. In her joy, Athena expresses that treating, quote, these kind ones, referring to the Arrhenias, is the way of keeping your land and city glorious in the ways of justice. Traditionally, this is considered the moment when the Arrhenias become the Eumenides, or the kindly ones, who are the spirits that protect Athens. The Greeks often tried to appease scary things by giving them sweet-sounding names. She also asked the jurors, whom she believes to be the ones who sustain the city, to lead the new settlers into their new home. Athena ends the play by leading her citizens offstage to continue the celebration of peace. End of play. We're sitting with Dr. Oliver Taplin, who is an emeritus fellow at Oxford University. He retired in 2008 after being a professor of classics at Oxford University and tutorial fellow at Magdalen College for 35 years. He's a prolific scholar who has written extensively on Aeschylus, the staging and visual representation of Greek tragedy, Homer, and a variety of other topics. Alongside this scholarship, Professor Taplin has produced a variety of translations of Greek tragedy, including his wonderful translation of the Oresteia, published in 2018, and Antigone and Other Plays, published in 2020. Thank you so much for doing this, <laughs> Professor yeah, Taplin. Yeah, we really appreciate you joining oh. us. <laughs> Delighted. <laughs> yeah, I we, we are big fans of your translation of the Oresteia. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Darby's a classicist. I'm not. I'm a I'm a theater maker. But did you enjoy um, you enjoyed it all the same? I hope. <laughs> oh, that's precisely why I enjoyed it. I read a couple, and I found this one to be incredibly accessible. As someone who doesn't have the background of a classicist, um, it, it flowed in a really beautiful way. What interested you in doing a translation of the Oresteia? Well, I think there were two things. Uh, one was precisely that it, it's theater 
I wanted to make a translation that could be performed. I wanted to make a translation that uh, while I didn't want to simplify it, I didn't want to make it uh, easy, I didn't want to make it uh, childish, but I wanted to make it accessible. So I wanted to make it into words that could be heard, words that could be understood, words that you didn't have to stop and look up footnotes and uh, you didn't have to study a program before the show began. So I, I wanted performability. At the same time, I'm, I'm a literary person. I love poetry. The poetry of Aeschylus is astonishing. Uh, the, the richness, the complexity, the unpredictability, the vividness. And I, I wanted to bring those out in the language. Is this something that you had intended for sort of classroom use uh, as well as for potential staging? Is this something that's supposed to help open up the text to undergraduates who might struggle with previous translations? Yes, I, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I wonder whether I thought of it that way. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, and uh, one thing that held me back, um, <clears throat> that um, there was the most astonishing production in London in 1981, and it was the first professional theatre that I ever had any connection with, uh, the translation by a man called Tony Harrison. It was an extraordinary translation, but into Yorkshire dialect. Um, and, oh, wow. uh, and I don't with, know if that would make it more accessible for me. <laughs> and with, with, with kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, alliterations. It was very strange, incredibly powerful, but very much a one-off. But I was associated with that. He's a friend of mine, and I felt inhibited. Uh, I felt I, I couldn't try and do something that would in any way challenge, uh, rival his translation. So I, I had to wait a long time for the, to, before I felt I'd got the kind of freedom to do it. And then um, Norton in, in New York uh, approached me to, to do an Oristide translation. They wanted it for their Norton critical editions. So they wanted it as a student, as a student textbook. And I, in a sense, you could say I exploited them. I took this invitation to produce a student text, to produce the performance text, the poetic text that I wanted to, to create. And I'm hoping that it does both. One thing I did do is that you know, there are some passages that are just too difficult. Uh, too, they've got too many problems. It's not necessarily that they're obscure, but there's a problem with the text, or there's a problem with an illusion so I have I've done what I call trimmed it slightly. I've taken out some things that just would hold things up because I, d I didn't want uh, people reading it, people performing it to have to stop every every thirty seconds and say what the hell's that about. Um, I wanted <laughs> I, I wanted it to, uh, one of you said that it flowed and that's what I wanted. I wanted to I wanted to have momentum, to have pace. Uh, so then not every single word is there, uh, and I'm not pretending that it is. Yeah, I think um, in particular with uh, Women at the Graveside, there are some textual issues and um, it was definitely nice to read a version of it that sort of flowed over some of those problems. kind of want to jump in and ask a little bit for any any listener that might not know what um, what you mean, what you both mean by problems when you say the text had a lot of problems. What what does that mean? Yes, well, the, 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 the main problem is just that... Uh... These, te these texts were copied uh, throughout um, classical times down to about 400 uh, CE. Uh, and then they went for the best part of a thousand years scarcely being copied until they were kind of rediscovered. Uh, rediscovered around 1,000, 1,100, and then 
Once they got through that bottleneck, they then got to the they then got to the west at the time of the fall of the Byzantine Empire and got copied and got printed. And that's what we've got. Now there are some bits, and particularly bits of that second play, where we've only got one manuscript. The whole the thing survived in only one copy, which was then multiply copied later. And the, the, the text is quite difficult, and it simply got what we call corrupted quite a lot. There are quite a lot of passages where the, the, the scribes are copying, copying the Greek out. Their Greek wasn't up to this difficulty, um, and it just doesn't make sense. Uh, so that, 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 that's, that's the worst problem, what we call textual problems. But there are also places where it gets just, there are obscurities. There are things that we, we don't understand, allusions that are just beyond us, or certainly allusions that are beyond uh, any ordinary reader. So, so that that that's uh, that's what I'm, that's that's the kind of difficulty where I where I trim. I I have a question about the the choice of of titles, particularly obviously in the second and, and third play. I mean, yeah. you talk about uh, wanting to make them more accessible, and you talk about it in the in your in the introduction to your book a little bit. Can you expand a little bit on why you landed on those choices of women at the graveside and Orestes at Athens? Yes, well, that's a good question, and it's a very good question. It's a slightly embarrassing question. I'll tell you why. I, I had I had no trouble with the second play. You know, the second play, standardly known as Coifri. Well, you know, Coifri, what on earth is that? And you say, oh, well, that means the libation bearers. And people say, yeah, but what's on earth, what on earth is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it, the, it, the, the titles... Um, the titles of the plays were what the titles that were used in the official records at Athens. And I think that it's quite unlikely, in fact, very unlikely, I'd, I'd say, um, I'll, I'll rephrase that. The, 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 the titles are the, uh, what were in the official records at Athens. But I don't think that the audiences at the original performances knew those titles. Those titles hadn't been created then. And I'm not at all sure that the titles even go back to the playwright. They're just the, the official record. So we have to know them by the titles that we have, but they're not sacred. So with the um, the coifery, the libation bearers, I felt perfectly free and women at the graveside seemed just right. It was a, uh, it was a, um, a straightforward and comprehensible alternative. The third play is much more difficult. And that's where I have to apologize because actually if I had the chance to do another edition, or to, to have another go at it, I would use a different title. I'll tell you why. The, 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 the third play, the title that went in the record was Eumenides. Uh, and Eumenides um, was, uh, the, the, here, we, here we have these creatures, these creatures of vengeance from, from the underworld, who the Greeks called Erinues. And the Erinues is usually translated as the Furies, because the Latin for Erinues was Furiae. Um, so the obvious thing was that Eumenides was a, um, it's a bit like uh, calling the devil Old Nick. You know, you call him Old Nick, but to kind of take, a, take some of the uh, sting out of his nastiness. Eumenides was a title to take their sting out. It, it, meant, it means the kind, the kind goddesses. And they're not kind, you know, they're, they're, they're terrifying. Mm so i and i um uh and it's no good as a title you know it, it, uh, it doesn't tell you who they are um and it kind of gives away that they 
turn nicer at the end of the play. So I, I had no hesitation in dropping that title. And then I thought, well, it's known as the Oresteia. Uh, the third play is about the trial of Orestes, so I'll, I'll call it um, Orestes in Athens. I think that was a mistake. I think the, tie, the play should have been named after the chorus. And just the other day, I realised what I should have called it. <clears throat> I should have called it the Daughters of Night, because that's what they are. And several times during the course of the play, they are addressed as the Daughters of Night. And right at the very end, when the procession, the torchlight procession takes them to their new home under, the, under Athens, where they're going to have this new cult, they say, come with us, you know, you Daughters of Night. So uh, there you are. Uh, I, I did the right thing to retitle it, and I did the wrong thing to call it Orestes at Athens. I should have called it The Daughters of Night. Long, wow, long that's story. a great title. <laughs> long that, story. that is yeah. a great title. Much better. It's a much better title. <laughs> For the next edition. <laughs> yeah, that's it, exactly. But you were the first people to hear it. Oh, okay. that's oh, exciting. Privilege. <laughs> Speaking a little bit more about the the specifics of what you do in the translation, um, you divide the text into scenes, which was actually very convenient for us when writing our summaries because it made it sort of easier to to chop it into sections. Yes. Um, but you also, of course, sort of literally wrote the book on how to stage Aeschylus. And I was wondering how you chose to divide the scenes um, within the plays. Uh, why create those divisions? And... Um, what about the sort of stage directions? We get some sort of minimal stage directions in yes, this translation. Yes. Well, those, those scene divisions are entirely me. You know, they're, they're not in the manuscripts. Right. And we thank you for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they were very useful. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's, why, that's quite simply why I've done them. I, I, I put in the stage divisions, because I, the scene divisions, because I thought this is really going to help readers and indeed performers and indeed rehearsers. As you point out in the introduction, this third play is extremely different from the two other plays. There's no bloodshed on stage. Um, the play set in Athens instead of Argos. The language, as we've talked about a little bit, also changes. We have this sort of incredibly high register poetic language in the Agamemnon that becomes sort of less pronounced. And instead, we get this incredible creation of this grotesque language that would perhaps be sort of more suitable to something like comedy. You know, and Orestes also has this chorus that not only comments upon, but actually like influences and serves as an antagonist or sort of protagonist, depending upon your interpretation. Um, so what is it that Aeschylus is doing, choosing to culminate the trilogy this way? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's an, amazing, an amazingly unpredictable turn. I mean, I think you're right. I think I think the the play is primarily about the Arrhenius. It's more about them, or at least as much about them as it is about Orestes. And the whole of the last uh, third of the play is about their future. You know, Orestes has been sent home. Apollo has just disappeared. Um, and have they got any function in the universe? Um, and that's what the and yes, it t turns out they they have a new. Uh, beneficial function in Athens. This um, invention, this uh, breakthrough of turning the chorus into the, into the main uh, subjects of the story was uh, very um, unusual and very unpredictable. We have one other play where, the, where this is true. Aeschylus' play called The Suppliants also has a, is about the chorus. 
there's um another moment I'm I'm curious about in the in that third play and it's the the ordering of the of the trial scene there's some debate over the order of all these things yes. um and I'm wondering how did how did you choose the order well uh there I did go back to this book I wrote uh, nearly 50 <laughs> years ago where I'd, I'd, I'd um, made a case which I still think is right um, and which has been accepted it was accepted in, the, in that London production in, in 1981 um, that Athena makes a big foundation speech for the court and in the text as it's come down through that very tortuous manuscript tradition in which um, the plays were the copying of the plays were so uh, risky um, and so liable to, to damage. As it's come down to us, that foundation speech comes at the end of the trial. Um, and uh, I, I think there is a strong case for saying it should come at the beginning of the trial. So what I've did, done in, the, in that live right edition is I've actually translated it that way. So I, um, the, the little line numbers in the margin tell people if they, want to, if they want to trace it, where it is that I've moved a big chunk of about 30 lines from near the end of the trial to near the beginning of the trial and then actually I also think that makes better sense of the voting uh, the very important voting scene there's another mm -hmm. piece of Aeschylean innovation I mean the, the the trial scene where he actually has the votes delivered one by one uh, by the by the jurors um, another piece of uh, extraordinary theatricality um, the first trial scene in world theatre What's your favorite translation of the Oresteia? You can say your own. My favorite translation. Well, um, in some ways, you know, it's that Tony Harrison translation because it, it had made such a huge impact on me in, in 1981. Do you have a, a favorite character uh, in the trilogy? Uh, <laughs> I've, never, I've never really thought of that, but, uh, but I think um, the greatest creation, the greatest theatrical creation of, of the trilogy is Clytemnestra. I don't think mm, there's any competition. Though, though, I also think that Cassandra is the Cassandra scene in 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 the in the Agamemnon is an absolutely astonishing scene. It's perhaps the most powerful scene of the trilogy. Clytemnestra is the most powerful character of the trilogy, and um, I feel sorry in a way for Orestes. I've been writing just just recently about what are these roles, <laughs> what are these roles like for actors. You know, Orestes is always shadowed by by Apollo. He's always got the shadow of Apollo behind him, and um, he doesn't have that kind of independent strength that Clytemnestra and Cassandra have. So it's a, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's, a diffi it's a difficult role. Yeah, I would agree with that. He almost seems like this kind of pawn in this that has to do all these things, but not necessarily because he wants to, but it's just he's mandated to, I suppose. Yes, yes. You don't feel that the motivation comes from his core in the way that that it does with um, with Clytemnestra and with Cassandra. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite sort of line or speech in the Oresteia? I have a favorite scene. I think I think the Cassandra scene is my favorite scene, um, and I found translating that as you know I was almost mesmerized by by the activity of translating it, uh, finding words to bring out this these visions these extraordinary visions that she has, um, which are so enigmatic and yet make such horrible sense. And the, perhaps as it gets towards the end and she she sees that Clytemnestra is waiting inside there to kill her, right. and she still, and she, 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 she says, uh, I'm going, uh, 
you know, and I perhaps perhaps my favorite lines are the lines that uh, are among the most famous lines of the Oristide at, at the very end when she says that this is what human life is like if you're if you're lucky then you're only partly lucky and if you're unlucky it can just be like a damp sponge wiping out a picture it just obliterates the picture amazing lines can i read them in my translation yes please let me read this whole speech <clears throat> i wish to add just one more word a swan song for myself i call on this my final shining sun make sure my killers pay back dear with their own blood for me the victim slave the easy catch this is the way it is for humans if they have good fortune it is like a shadow if they are unfortunate it takes a dampened sponge to wipe the picture clean away (laughs) incredibly powerful scene (laughs) it's not bad (laughs) yeah the image is just so vivid it's so so vivid and what a privilege to hear you read them thank you the trilogy, I mean, the Aristide as a whole can be can be a challenging text for for students. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that your translation is very helpful in making sure in making it much easier. But but it's his, typically known as a challenging text, and I wonder why do you think it's a worthwhile read? I think uh, the issues that confront us in in human life. I don't I don't want to say that. Uh, I don't want to be a universalist and say all humans and all societies and all times experience exactly the same, uh, exactly the same world, see right. the world in exactly the same way. But there are certain there are certain things that are pretty persistent, um, and uh, particularly things to do with mortality, things to do with the family. The family isn't universal, but it's it's um, pretty widespread. Uh, things to do with the relationship of the individual and society and. It seems to me that what uh, great art does is take you into the issues through through particularity, through words and through things and through poetry and through pictures. Um, and the Oristia seems to me to to raise um, issues that are still very live. I'm not saying universal, but they're live. Um, and to do it with a theatricality um, uh, to to turn them into a theatre that is potentially really deeply absorbing. It it draws the audience the particularities as opposed to preaching or as opposed to writing political pamphlets, um, uh, uh, as opposed to writing history. Uh, draws draws the audience into the experience, and 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 therefore makes it come alive. So what I think is that even though it's from two thousand five hundred years ago, uh, while the play is going on, or while you're even absorbed in in reading it, you're drawn into the issues that still still exercises that still mean a lot to us. As like um, Cassandra saying, "This is the way it is for humans." Uh, perhaps that's my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly resonates um, across all of the ages. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the myth told in the Oresteia is referenced nine separate times in the Odyssey. And um, so why is the connection between these two stories so important? 
I think I think that may be coincidence in a sense. I mean, in the, in the Odyssey, the the um, here we have the story of of a, a returning hero from Troy, and what happens when that hero gets home. And uh, therefore, it is uh, that's the story pattern, and the story pattern of what happened to Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Agamemnon, Orestes is set up against Penelope, Odysseus. Telemachus. So uh, it's there as, as because it uh, makes us such an interesting comparison and contrast. Um, so I, I, I think and uh, the, the fact that they, two of our greatest works of Greek literature, have this very strong um, uh, story pattern in, in common, um, in, in a sense is a coincidence. Um, uh, I think I would say, and it is interesting that there's very little reference to the Odyssey in, in the Oresteia. Although there is, there is, uh, Agamemnon does talk about Odysseus when he first comes home. Yeah, there's a mention, but the Odyssey seems to have several more. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it's more interesting. In the you know, right near the very beginning of the Iliad. Um, when the old priest comes to and says, "I'm, I'm, uh, I want my daughter back," and Agamemnon says, "No, I don't. I'm not going to let you have your daughter back. I like her. I like her a lot. I think I prefer her to Clytemnestra." <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> he was asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Tablin. This has been yeah. really what an. What an honor and well, how fun you. it was to speak thank, with you. Thank you for getting in touch with me. And I'm, I'm, I must say, I'm very, very pleased that it was my translation that, that got you interested in talking to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hope everybody teaches your translation when they teach Certainly. the Aristaya. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, yeah. then. Bye, bye for right. now, then. Bye-bye. Chill is made possible by Illuminations at the University of California, Irvine. Special shout out to Julia Lupton, our forever queen, Phil and Katie Friedel for their incredible generosity, and special thanks to Vinnie Oliveri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction.